You are listening to the Podcast of Ice and Fire, episode 135 for the week of February 16th, 2014. Welcome back everyone to the longest running, award-winning podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series and occasionally HBO's Game of Thrones. This is Amin and I'm joined by several guests today. This is Katie. This is Michal. And we're also joined uh, with a special guest today, Stefan. Welcome back, Stefan. Welcome, everyone. And uh, where are you from again, Stefan? What are you involved in? Yeah, I'm geographically from Germany, with, uh, which you can uh, hear from my accent. And I am doing the Boiled Leather Audio Hour with uh, Sean T. Collins. I hope you will listen to it as well. And I'm doing the Nerd Stream Era blog and occasionally blog on the Tower of the Hand, so I'm quite a busy fellow. You're a fellow member of the bench from our Supreme Court of Westeros. Yeah, exactly. All right. And today we're doing a special episode uh, where we'll be covering one of Stefan's sample essays from the upcoming A Hymn for Spring ebook coming out in uh, June, I believe. And this, the essay is The Patriarchs of Westeros, examining the toll the great lords exact from their families, their small folk, and from progress. This essay is available currently as, as a free sample within Remy's Waiting for Winter ebook, which is basically analyzing A Clash of Kings. We'll have links up for that. Uh, but this essay will appear as one of, one of his several that will appear in Him for Spring that I am involved in and Mimi is involved in and a bunch of other authors. So that being said, let's jump into it. Stefan, tell us a little bit about what your essay is about. Yeah, the essay is, as the title suggests, about patriarchs in Westeros, and I have taken an especially close look on three of them, because they are uh, differing so much in their approach on how they rule uh, the small folk as well as their families. And those uh, three I am taking on are Tywin Lannister, Eddard Stark, and Randall Tarly. And uh, what I did in the beginning was to have a look at Tywin, who uh, is a patriarch uh, that command that rules mostly through his command of fear. Uh, so uh, Tywin's main objective is uh, to be feared. Uh, he doesn't care for love or uh, or this kind of loyalty that other lords uh, command by their sheer presence, uh, by being nice, uh, you know. Uh, he is all about power, uh, and uh, he has generally this no-bullshit attitude, which is why he reacts so strongly on Tyrion. And of course, uh, this uh, this attitude that Tywin Lannister has developed uh, stems from his father, uh, Titus Lannister, who was the laughing stock of the Westlands. Uh, and so Tywin, uh, he took the lesson from it that he uh, isn't ever allowed to be laughed at. And he tries to uh, to show his children, to teach his children that, but uh, in their own ways, all three of them are failing. And uh, his treatment of his children is strange to say the least for example jamie he can virtually do no wrong because he's the heir apparent and while he is not exactly able to do so he uh, is uh, the one who meets the expectations in appearance and appearance has meant a lot to tywin but i guess we will get into detail about the children later and then i had a look at eddard stark because he is basically the nice patriarch you know he has the perfect family. Uh, everyone loves each other, and the children, they are capable, and they are sensitive, and, and all of that, you know, his, uh, his uh, small folk, uh, I guess, love him more or less, his 
Bannerman love him. I mean, they even go to war for uh, his child after he is dead, and the Starks are basically destroyed, and all uh, all of that. So he he seems like a total stand up dude, like uh, a role model. Uh, but I am arguing that he is, on the other hand, still a patriarch with all the problems uh, that brings with it. Uh, and I will come to that uh, later again. And the last is Randall Tarley, who is a patriarch in the extreme. Uh, strip all of the emotional baggage I wrote from uh, what Tywin Lannister and Eddard Stark does, and what you get is Randall Tarley. He is a very cruel person uh, with no regard uh, to anything but his own his own rule and the rules that go with it. Uh, you can see this uh, in, in, for example, in this trial that Brienne witnesses in A Feast for Crows, where a thief is punished very harshly, a prostitute is punished even more harshly, and he has uh, this misogyny uh, ingrained deep into his bones, into his soul. He is a man, and for him, uh, the men are the, the pinnacle uh, of evolution and women are worth considerably less. So uh, these uh, three I have a look at and uh, I'm then generally discussing that patriarchy is the one force that holds development in Westeros back because even Eddard Stark for all his virtues still has a strong sense of up and down uh, where one person is placed and what they can do and he is not exactly promoting progress. Um, and the biggest hope for progress is in that respect, Dorn. So that's the basic synopsis of the essay. I think this is really interesting. I think definitely, like when you think of patriarchs in, in Westeros, Tywin is the one that jumps to mind. But I think I would actually maybe disagree with you about. Um, Edder, can I talk about? Sure. Ned? Yeah. Um, about Ned, um, in just a little bit, and that his and Catelyn's relationship is not. Like, it's not like Randall Tarly's relationship. Actually, Tywin's relationship with Joanna also. Both of those relationships kind of defy the standard, you know, meek, womanly wife, you know, who sews in the sitting room while a harp plays and, you know, and the man goes out and gets meat and kills men. Um, you know, we, we know that Joanna was um, a very powerful person and we know that Catelyn was hugely influential on Ned. Um, and he didn't seem to, you know, resent that or question that in any way. So, um, so I think it's it's a really interesting way to look at things. But I wonder if, like, what what you think the kind of the slightly unusual role of women in um, Tywin and um, Ned's family lives, um, how that plays into this. But is Caitlin that unusual? I mean, she's active within her role as a wife and mother. She goes to treat with Renly, which is an active duty, but she does it as uh, Rob's envoy, as the widowed wife of the Warden of the North and the mother of a king, which is something that's within within reason of what's expected as her as a woman. And if there's anyone who's dutiful to the patriarchy as, I think, forceful and willful as she is, I think it's Caitlin, and she doesn't seem to mind it so much whereas we don't know i don't think we know enough about joanna to know how she reacted to living under tywin's rule but i don't know i kind of disagree with like the idea that caitlin was in any way uh bending the like the system the carefully constructed system that is very good at protecting itself in westeros i definitely agree on that yeah i mean i wouldn't say necessarily that it's revolutionary but it is maybe more nuanced. Tywin and Ed, Ed, uh, Eddard's relationships, you're right, might be 
little bit atypical, but I think that they overall still accepted patriarchy in the way they, and as Stefan shows, like the way they dealt with their small folk or with other people or even their family. Edward was better at it. He was nicer, but they both, like, didn't really challenge the idea that you'd be married off or that the small folk should be under the lords. Like, Edward's yeah. biggest... Oh, sorry. No, yeah, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say, like, Edward, his most... Uh, not controversial, but his biggest tipping... That's not the right word, either. His biggest blind spot seems to be Arya, but he treats her... Like her, her want to be a knight and her want to fight as as a passing phase. Like sooner or later, you're going to marry and you're going to have a son, and he'll be a knight or he'll be a maester and he'll rule the castle. And he doesn't seem too concerned that this is uh, something that's going to carry on into her later life. And part of it is because you get the the feeling that he's he's being nostalgic for Liana and what she was like when she was a child and maybe trying to. Uh, reconnect with his dead sister in that way by letting Arya do what she wants by riding horses and, and play fighting with swords but there's never a sense really that if Arya maybe wanted to continue this you know past puberty that he just doesn't seem worried about it I don't think it ever crosses his mind that that's something that's going to happen yeah he treats it as okay she's a child this is a whim eventually she's going to fall into her duties and become a wife and mother as is expected of her and he's not unkind in that view but nice does not exactly <laughs> make it right and i think you're right about joanna who i think we, we know that joanna had a big influence on tywin and i think her death kind of like pushed him to double down on his no bs attitude like if she was alive maybe she would have balanced him out a little bit yeah, but I guess uh, Joanna, from what we hear from her, uh, is more or less like Catelyn, because uh, she's the one brokering the marriages, you know, that uh, the Doran connection that, uh, that's going on there. But it doesn't seem to me like she went out of her role. She was definitely powerful in that, he, uh, in that she had influence on Tywin's de decisions, but she would never have presumed in the Dornish way to take up uh, the responsibility of ruling by herself, you know. Uh, it's uh, you are con uh, contained uh, as a woman uh, to be behind the scenes. Uh, if you are able to do that, fine. But you never presume uh, to get on center stage, and I don't think Joanna did that. Well, I mean, I think that that's. I mean, this is this is conjecture on my part, but somebody must have been ruling Casterly Rock while Tywin was in King Landing all those years. I kind of get the in in well. My assumption is that Joanna had a strong part in that. I mean, this is all, you know, not, um, this is all besides the point, I guess. But I guess it's interesting. I don't disagree with you about, you know, especially Arya and Ned. I guess it's, we see, we see Tywin directly challenged by Cersei's, I guess, ideas of independence and rulership. Um, and by that point, unfortunately, everything is so messed up that nobody has a shot at happiness there. But we don't really see Ned, like you said, Katie, like challenged in a in a practical way. He's very, you know, he if Arya had been, you know, sixteen and been like, I'm not getting married, I'm not doing this, that would have been a much more interesting situation to see everyone in, I think. Joanna and Caitlin, they can be powerful within their roles because that's not outside the realm of believability for what's expected of a, a nobleman's wife, which is to basically uh, run the castle, you know, direct the stewards, and your husband ultimately is the head of the family, but the wife is 
I mean, historically, she was involved in the finances of the castle. She was in charge of directing the servants. It wasn't a sit around and I'm going to sew and gaze out my window longingly. I mean, as a wife of a nobleman, you were expected to pull your weight, but it was all within this is what, who you are as a woman and this is what you are going to do. And ultimately, you're going to defer to your husband and legally, you, do, you have no power. You are not even a person legally. <laughs> We see the proof of that, by the way, because uh, Sansa is mentioned, I think, at least twice uh, at being very bad at numbers uh, and people despairing over her. And Arya makes this remark about, I hope her uh, future husband has a good steward. You know, so that seems definitely uh, in the realm of the usual responsibility. And if you are jo uh, Joanne Lannister, of course, you are running a very big castle, but you are still running a household, which is the, the task of the woman. Well, it fits in with the way you described how Tywin sees like the lordly presence as being the guy being marshal, that sort of thing. Like counting numbers doesn't seem like the lordly kind of thing to do. Hmm. But in the yeah. Randall Tarly school of things, I mean, we don't we don't get a very strong sense of Sam's mother, but we do get the idea that she's. I mean, she's very much like Sam. I think you know. I mean, he just talks about like sit, he he liked to sit with the ladies and so and not. Um, I mean, I guess we don't know if if Mrs. Tarley does any of the numbers, Lady Tarley, but, um, I mean, I, I guess I just see something of a difference there in terms of um, having women as a potentially mitigating influence against this overwhelming patriarchy. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's not patriarchy, but I guess I just see it as a little more textured, and not in Tywin's case anymore, obviously, but in, in Ned's case. Something that could have, you know, if he hadn't actually died, um, that might have developed in an interesting way, but maybe not. Hmm. I mean, Randall, Randall Tarly is an extreme case in many directions. Yeah, and you put him at the end of the spectrum, like he's like the extreme end of it. I just wanted to to talk about your point about Cersei and the way she, as the three children of Tywin, they all develop badly mainly because of Tywin, but she like kind of puts a mental block towards that and doesn't see that it, like she she's resentful of her position, but ultimately still, like some victims of abuse, is unable to target that toward person who did initially Tywin she takes it out yeah elsewhere. basically Stockholm Syndrome I mean uh, she wants so much to be like Tywin uh, she it's really strange in a way yes, Cersei is the most tragic example of that system for me because you have this woman who is so powerful and fierce but at the same time she is incapable of preventing her children from being taken away from her and it like it, it slowly destroys her from the inside out. Whereas you have Jamie, who for most of his life, he's led this unexamined existence. He's basically coasting, but he enjoys the fruits of being the oldest son. And he doesn't really have to do anything until, you know, he gets his hand cuts off and he wants to, you know, pursue, for lack of a better word, he wants to pursue a career. <laughs> and his dad is, is His modeling irritated. time is done. He's got to do some work now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But then you have Cersei, who is eager, and she wants to grab the reins of that power, but she's unable to, and it drives her insane. And it's kind of... Her and Lysa, I think, are like the tragic victims of the circumstances of basically having these fathers who were very much dedicated to seeing to basically treating them as commodities and giving them off to husbands who were either bad matches or abuse them. And there's no reconciliation for that. I think it is uh, it is almost tragic that Cersei is 
very uh, very correct in her assessment of why she fails as a ruler. She she always puts it on her sex because uh, people don't respect her like Tywin because she's a woman. Of course, she's all, she also has other problems, but um, much of it stems from this source. I mean, people respected Joffrey, for, so why don't they respect Cersei? It, it is definitely about uh, about her sex. So she she is correct on top of all of that bullshit uh, that has to drive her insane. And you're. Uh review of Ned too I found it interesting like you, as you said he's a religious man and deeply rooting in the traditions of his culture without becoming a hillbilly I think that was a pretty good point there I mean he's religious without being overly conservative but he doesn't also put too many faith in superstitious signs I think Caitlin says that so he's a nice balance yeah, he- there yeah, his model as the ideal patriarch, uh, that, that is uh, just the thing. Uh, he, he is ideal in, any, uh, in anything. He is very, uh, very nice, very considerate. He is uh, seeing it from different angles. He takes the personal responsibility that bears on every patriarch and that uh, wears down so many who aren't up to the task. And all of that, and still he uh, he can only fail in um, in giving progress uh, to the country because patriarchy is quite simply a system that ex- excludes about I don't know ninety five percent of the population. Fifty percent are out because of their sex, and the others are out because they have a, a status of children, and not only because they are children, obviously, but also because they are given the uh, the legal status of children, which applies to the small folk. They they are uh, seen as children by their overlords, and uh, children they don't have uh, the power over their own lives. So, and Eddard Stark is definitely in that mindset. We uh, we don't know one instance where where he ele- uh, elevates and. Uh, progresses uh, his small folk. He's nice to them, he takes them to his table, he talks with them, but uh, I have never heard of, hey, go study with Mr. Lewin, you could become a, a, really, a really great guy or something. That doesn't seem like a thought Eddard Stark would have. Hmm. Well, that's actually really interesting, too, in the in the, um, the idea of life and death. Um, I mean, I guess the first time we meet Ned, you know, we're, we're seeing him murder somebody who we've seen the exact circumstances of why this man fled the wall and it you know i guess the niceness of ned kind of overwhelms our our under our view of that situation later on but i remember the first time reading it being like wait a second this guy just saw all the scary stuff like why are you killing him and you know there's there's no um way out in in that situation and the same thing with lady actually you know, it, it doesn't occur to Ned to, I guess, do what he does later with, with um, you know, when he resigns in protest um, over Danny's potential murder. Uh, it doesn't occur to him to do that with Lady. It's, you know, this, this utterly unjust situation that he goes along with because of the king. And the king is right. And, I mean, I, I almost wonder if it would be different if, if it had been one of the boys' wolves. But I don't know. The thing is, I like... Like, Ned is so... Like, I, I guess I blame a lot of it on the fact that he does... Like, the Starks, they live such an isolated existence up in the north. And when he goes down to King's Landing, because we're in his head, especially during that first read, it's not as... a Like, it's hard to be embarrassed for him when you're inside of his head. But then looking at it from the outside, it's... Like, it's ridiculous that Ned goes down there and he is absolutely flummoxed that they like the kingdom is in debt you know that the like this this kingdom that they set up with robert that 
you know, they fought this war for is somehow a corrupt, it's become a corrupt government. And he's flummoxed and he's like, how could this have possibly happened? And you could see the other people, like the other guys on the small council just like, oh my God, rubbing their temples, like, welcome to politics, dude. And in a big part of that is just because Ned, he, his whole life has been basically in this bubble up in Winterfell where he's never had to be challenged by the fact that there are things like debt and <laughs> banks to pay and these things that don't follow uh, course correction justice. Yeah, well, I think that's also, I mean, just part of the fact that the North is so simple and, well, I mean, relatively simple. I'm sure there's there's plenty of capacity for the Northerners to have their own political games and Games of Thrones and all that, but at the current time, it just seems like, like it's like um, storybook uh, patriarchy slash medieval land up there, and, you know, everybody works their own, everybody's hardworking, and, you know, like, we know who the enemy is, the enemy's winter, and, and all that, and then in the South, it's, it's so much more complicated. Well, yeah, I mean, it has to be life is a lot more simple when your one focus is making sure you have enough food to last you through the winter. The people in the South don't necessarily, and I mean winter like the yearly winter, not like big winter that comes, but like they get the snows in the summer and whatnot. They they seem like they have to toil much harder, and when you have to toil, you're less likely to worry about things like taxes per se whereas people in the south have different uh, it's a different economy and it's a different and they have different daily problems I'm not quite sure whether this is correct because we, we have evidence that in the past uh, of the uh, of the north there was much much more strife and intrigues and stuff like that you know with the Boltons especially but also with other houses uh, the Umbers are described as very unruly uh, the relationship to the Karstarks wasn't always uh, that rosy, all, all of that. And um, I think uh, this uh, I, idyllic situation that we have in the beginning of A Game of Thrones in the North, like uh, our only concern is winter, is more uh, um, a testament of Ned's skills as a northern ruler. I mean, he's a very, very efficient ruler. He commands uh, the obedience and loyalty of his vessels, even uh, of those who hate him and try to undermine him. Uh, and it is only the southern politics that he sucks at. He's very good at northern politics. Mm. Well, something true. I would say is I think it's interesting. The, um, the relationship to the small folk, I think, is necessarily different in the north. Um, you know, I, I don't know, maybe it wasn't always like this. And, you know, in, in those times when you have the, all the northern strife that people don't want to think about. Um, but I do think that, like, by necessity, you know, I, I just remember that scene where Maester Lewin is, like, talking to people about how much food they're going to put away. And it's like, this is more of a communal concern, I think, than it is, at, at least in King's Landing. It might be different in, you know, the Riverlands or the Vale. But I think that the interaction with the small folk is different not not in a um in an, any kind of upward mobility but more of a like men can't pretend they're not people whereas in king's landing you can i think why can't he there's fewer of them for one thing um mm -hmm. like you said Mihal, they grow the food and also i don't know like how big winterfell is but it seems like it is a much smaller community where visibly it seems like he would be able to <sighs> conceive of their needs in a way that so, like uh, a nobleman in King's Landing would not be able. For every Ned, you have a Bruce Bolton. Exactly. Right, 
Yeah. I'm ex- like w- wildly extrapolating. I think it is even easier in the north to uh, to ignore that your people are people because there are a few of them and they are scattered. You never have to see them actually. Uh, I mean, uh, in Winterfell there is almost nobody living. They only come there in winter to the winter town, and uh, it is repeated sev- uh, several times that the uh, that small folk is scattered across uh, a very large uh, square of land, and that they don't see much of them. When you get to those uh, clan types, northern people like the Flints and stuff like that, they might actually be in a closer relationship because they're all they're all poor, even the lords. Yeah, probably. So. <laughs> can we can we talk about Dorn? Because I thought you sure. uh, I thought the conclusion that you drew was interesting. That um, the potential for progress is in Dorn because I, I, and that's probably I want I kind of disagree with that because historically it seems like that that is likely because men and women in the nobility are they hold or they're able to hold an equal title a woman can be the prince of dorne per se but from arianne's chapters it seems like one of her greatest paranoias is that her father is going to set her aside in favor of quentin and like based on no merit of quentin's own it has everything to do in her mind with the fact that he's a man and so when she deceives her father and he locks her away in the tower. He also he locks away the sand snakes. He marries off Spotted Silva to uh, the Lord of Eastermont so that she's basically uh, nullified as a political entity. Like, of course, the men are sent away and dispersed as well, but it seems like as a woman, it, it, even in Dorn, you are still subject to basically being taken out of... Like, the, the mobility you have to... Uh, protect yourself against the whims of your male uh, peers is a lot lesser than a man maybe in that situation. And we don't have the benefit of seeing uh, a man in Arion's situation, but it, I just always come back to the fact that she is very preoccupied with the possibility of Quentin usurping her because she is a woman. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we have two problems with that. Uh, the first is that, uh, that she, the Quentin is clearly the favorite child, uh, and she is not. Uh, which is the main thing. I don't know if it's so much about gender. And the second thing is, Doran is able to do all that, you know, the sending away, locking in towers, all that kind of stuff, because he is uh, the ruler of the house. If he was female, he could do the same things. Katie's point is interesting in that there's still that, like, Doran doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in the overwhelming shadow of the rest of the, the realm which is, you know, as we've just said, hugely um, patriarchal. And I think that Ariane's fears might not have manifested if Dorne was, for example, an island, you know. Um, I mean, they're an example of a culture that's been, that while retaining their own identity, has still been very strongly influenced by the conquerors, basically. Yeah, and it was partly her personal experience growing up with finding the letter and that kind of thing that fed that. And also, yeah, she the fact that she's so well-educated and she knows about, like, you know, Kristen Cole and that kind of stuff, and she can actually imagine, like, or, yeah, make that comparison to, to the rest of Westeros examples. I mean, I'm the last one to romanticize Dorne, uh, but uh, in that special case, uh, the role of gender, I think they are very progressive compared to the rest of Westeros. Well, very much. There's a historical precedent for that sort of thing that was put aside in Westeros with the fall of the Targaryens and the dance with the dragons. And I think that historical precedence is very important because without it, it is very easy to put women aside. 
Whereas with it, there is, of course, the potential to use that as a weapon if a woman did want to, or if a woman was coming into power. It does remind me of, um, and I haven't read the uh, the Princess and the Queen yet, so maybe that's answered. But in the dan- like in the first Dance of the Dragons, uh, or I guess the only one, is it ever explained? Because wasn't it said that the woman who was going to be queen? Didn't they say that she was, like, crazy or something, and that's why they didn't want her on the throne? Or was it because... Her husband was a little wild, I think. And they didn't like him. They didn't want... They were talking about her being influenced. A lot of a lot of the discussion that I recall was not about her capacity as a ruler, but about the legitimacy of her children and about her connections to... And, and her... Um, I mean, she couldn't win either way. It was, like, her current husband wasn't good enough to be was you know they didn't think he would make a good king and they thought he would basically rule for her and her other her children by her previous husband who i guess was acceptable to them um were possibly illegitimate so mm-hmm. they they discounted her on both of those i think they were grasping every possible excuse they could yeah it was also a factor i mean like they they might have believed that part partially but also it is anything that would fit well, that is something that did happen in i mean in this world women being nullified because they were you know they were deemed to be mentally unsound or were witches or (laughs) were sleeping you know with somebody and they needed to have their heads cut off but that always stuck out to me is that that seems like the targaryens up until that point had been fairly gender uh neutral in their in regards to who who was in power and who was taking the throne and that was the first instance where it's like a woman was going to come into power and they needed to nullify her by inventing a problem that <laughs> with who she was like mentally what was going on in her head interesting thing about the best McQueen is that this was largely orchestrated by a woman mm-hmm. um i mean at least in the beginning of the story what's her name allison hightower's role is is huge in in that she she crowns her her son and her daughter mm. I was just going to speculate. I mean, Dorne was an enemy at that point, but it would have been interesting that they were more directly involved. As far as we know, there was nothing going on there, and what their input would have been on the succession. But it seems like they were just neutral. They weren't conquered yet, so. In the, the, at that point, they were an independent nation, right? Yeah. So they just didn't, but they didn't seem like they got involved, as, as far as we heard, anyways. I'm interested to see because we don't, at least we don't have any knowledge of a Dornish woman coming as like you know, kind of transporting her, transposing her role, her equally respected role in Dorne to King's Landing, which, um, it's, who, it's Lady Nim is going oh, yeah, to... yeah, on her way, I think, on the boat, you mean? For the yeah. council, yeah. Yeah, and that hasn't happened before, as far as we know, so that will be very interesting to see. I mean, That's actually the really fact that she wants to kill everybody aside from yeah. that. Yeah, well, I mean, just get, adding her to that situation with the Tyrells and the uh, Lannister people on the council... <laughs> it's a pretty interesting <laughs> council. It will be interesting if the Tyrells try and like undermine her because she's a woman, even though they are obviously female-driven. Because so, that is something that happens here too. I mean, like Cersei doesn't, you know, even though she's queen, she makes no attempt to like, you know, help other women in her position. She like kind of pushes them down. Also, so I wonder if the Tyrells will go that way or. Maybe they'll all be dead by that point, I don't know. Well, that's the idea that they were talking about, that maybe Mer- Cersei would have smiled on the idea of Marcella becoming, being crowned because it would help her own cause. But then, on the other hand, Marcella's under the control of the Dornish, whereas Tommen is right there. Yeah, I think that's what she would fixate on. It's not so much, yay, my daughter is 
a queen. It's no, my daughter is in the hands of my enemies. She's dead to me. <laughs> but speaking of Tyrells, as you pointed out, and, and we talked about in this essay about like people who are not under current maybe patriarchy rule, like the Tyrells, or at least for the current generation, seem to be run by the women. And as you pointed out, Willis is, sends the letters to Marguerite, not to to his father. The father is just a tool, basically. <laughs> right. <laughs> But I, 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 you talked about the Baratheons and how they're not paid. But I mean, I think Robert, I mean, he certainly claimed his rights. I think that's yeah. one thing he did. And then Stannis is kind of a tricky one. But I feel like Stannis and maybe Ed as well, as we were talking about, both those guys, like the justice that they have, the old school justice, it could be seen as one form of patriarchy, right? Or at least like one form of, like, it's just a very masculine form of justice. There's other forms of justice, right? Where it can look, as you said, at intentions or at family connect, like, but it was just like, it's a very old school application. This is what happens. You just follow the law, no exceptions. The reason why I wrote that the Baratheons are not exactly patriarchs is that they not that they uh, use different ruling tactics. Of course, they still have uh, to have the small folk and be the lord of them, and they have vassals, and they have families uh, of which they are the chiefs, uh, but they don't um, act from an patriarch uh, self-image. Uh, they all have uh, they all have different images. I mean, Egan the Conqueror wasn't a patriarch neither. They were conquerors. I mean, that's uh, that's what Robert is taking on. He uh, he rules because he's a conqueror, not because he's a patriarch. Uh, uh, things like uh, being the father, the eldest of the line, is not is not something that is high on his priority list. And uh, for Stannis, it is uh, much more about the laws, which is a very modern standpoint if you think about it. Uh, it, uh, it is the law. And Renly, he, he's amiable, he's a fellow who is uh, to be loved, but uh, being the elder obviously uh, doesn't play any part uh, for him. So that's that's why I didn't uh, mark them as patriarchs. I would actually disagree with you about Robert. I think, I'm not sure how I feel about Stannis, but I think that Robert is, I mean, he is, his success is enabled by his, his uh, I guess, wedding to the patriarchy. He fits so well with that you know that super masculine you know take what you want have all the girls be you know have a huge war hammer and take over the system <laughs> like that's all yeah, enabled but, but because of the patriarchy isn't patriarchy how isn't that uh, that is, uh, th- these are the perks of being a man in a in a world uh, in which uh, women are uh, discriminated and all of that. But it isn't patriarchy. The idea of patriarchy is being a father figure uh, for your own family as well as for your small folk. And uh, Robert Baratheon is much things, but he is not a father figure. Mm. That's not Renly a role he can fulfill. Renly seems like he'd be the most progressive. I mean, to an extent, you get the... the Whenever you have women who are outside of the um, the accepted gender roles, like Brienne or Asha, or uh, those other Ironborn women, or the uh, the Mormons, it's usually they're treated as um, curiosities or novelties. And as long as there's only a few of them, no one seems to mind. They might get harassed about it, but it's it's not as if Renly is he's he's willing to say yes to Brienne when she wins the uh, the melee, but it's not as if he's you know, opening the door to other women knights in that position is just because Brienne is a something to be ogled at, or, or may, part of it because I think it's just Renly being Renly, and he's open to having fun and like, oh, this might be neat and a lady <laughs> on my on my rainbow guard. I think to find your saying your argument is like Robert is a sexist, but he's not. He doesn't see himself as a patriarch in the way that 
Eddard and, and Randall do or take that role? Like from Exactly. The, uh, uh, Robert uh, totally neglects uh, the responsibility part. Uh, that is what I said before. A patriarch has to bear uh, the responsibility for his actions and for his people. And uh, sometimes in twisted ways, but uh, uh, Tywin and Randall Tarly and Eddard Stark all assume this, res- this, uh, this responsibility. Look at Tywin. At, uh, so much of his problems in the relationship with his son stem from this sense of responsibility that he has. Uh, Robert doesn't give a fuck about uh, Joffrey because because this responsibility is nothing that he uh, that he inherits uh, that he lives. Uh, the, the child is spoiled so bad for the child uh, that that's nothing uh, that concerns him. He doesn't see it as a threat to his position because he never defines himself about it. For Tywin, who defines himself as the father figure of House Lannister, a child being a bit disappointment is a huge problem for Robert Baratheon, who uh, who sees himself as the conqueror of the Iron Throne. Having a spoiled child is not a problem. Alternatively, though, I mean, the whole war started because Robert felt possession over Lyanna, and you know, and that is a patriarchal value. You know, it might it might not be like literally like dad. But it's still that, like, oh, she's my betrothed, she's she's mine, Rhaegar has taken something from me. Obviously, you know, there's all those, like, lovey-dovey nonsense feelings mixed up in there as well. But I think that Robert is, I mean, maybe he's, like, a lapsed patriarch by the time we meet him in the series, because he doesn't give a fuck about anything at that point. But I, I still think that his, um, his aggressiveness is a, a kind of, you know, it, it is his... It's his manifestation of patriarchy. His uh, machismo. Yeah, but this machismo isn't part uh, of patriarchy. It's uh, it's part uh, of being a man. Uh, what uh, what Robert does, uh, this whole stuff you have, you know, the possession of Liana because she is his betrothed, um, this whole machismo thing. All men in Westeros strive after this image. Every knight does so. Uh, we get uh, multiple uh, multiple examples of this. But uh, there are only few patriarchs because only the eldest in uh, any given family can be a patriarch. No one else can. And uh, so uh, what Robert does is being a man, he, in, he, in, he inhabits all of this, no questions. Uh, but what he does not is assume the responsibilities uh, of a patriarch. A patriarch can't fuck around like uh, Robert does because he has a responsibility to his family. Uh, Eddard Stark, he wasn't unfaithful for all we know. Randall Tarly, uh, the same thing. And Tywin Lannister may have been unfaithful, but he always did so that nobody could see because uh, the image of the unfailing patriarch who uh, has all these uh, virtues, these, uh, these values is too important and Robert he doesn't care about it he can't be a patriarch I think the distinction we're making is between patriarchy with a little p and then patriarchy with a big p in that patriarchs literally being the head of the family and then Michal what you're describing is the sexism that's inherent in the society that contributes to patriarchy with a big p which is like I said a the system that that reinforces uh, male and female roles in a way that is that disadvantages women in particular. Yes, exactly. I guess I guess I would just say in that case, like Robert's actually worse. Like at least take the responsibility for the patriarchy. You know, he just benefits from it and doesn't do anything. Definitely, I never I never said he was a role model. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I know. 
you talked about progress a lot in here, but what do you mean progress? Do you mean social? Do you mean economic? Do you mean uh, scientific? Do you mean all of them? Like what? What? what do you all do? of them. Uh, the the whole system of Westeros, feudalism on the one hand and the patriarchy uh, that is so embedded in feudalism on the other hand, uh, basically blocks all of this progress. You can't uh, you can't get an economy th uh, thriving because no one is allowed to leave the post of a born to. So that's that. You can't have social progress because again, everyone is in a certain position and isn't allowed to leave it. So so you can move uh, on that account and so on and so forth. Uh, patriarchy blocks all progress. That is why is so evil even if it's done in its most perfect form like with Eddard Stark. Um, something I would actually ask you about Stefan is um, the Night's Watch. Do you think they kind of play into this? Because I was thinking about Mormont a lot um, while I was reading your essay and he definitely does kind of serve as kind of the, the social patriarch of the Night's Watch. You know, I mean the, the Lord Commander is supposed to be unassailable. And he definitely serves as a father figure to John. Um, so do you think the Night's Watch is involved in this or against it or not at all related? I think not at all. I mean, this isn't an issue for the Night's Watch because there are only men there, so no need to reinforce generals. Mormont is like a father figure for John because John doesn't really have a father and Mormont somehow has to fill the hole that Chora left. Uh, but uh, I think Mormont uh, is more akin to... Uh, the president of the United States in his role uh, in and how he is perceived than as a monarch or patriarch. He is elected for life, to be sure, uh, but it is more an institutional thing, not a father figure. A Mormon is no father for all the other Night's Watchmen. He is their commander, but not a father. Okay, interesting. Okay, well, well, well done, Stefan. You set a high bar for us to reach. Oh, thank you, thank you. Warm, fuzzy feeling, you know. <laughs> okay uh, what, what i was hoping to do is, is to do a couple of chapters are we up for that I sure is stefan your uh, yeah i have to go in like an hour so. okay yeah it won't it won't be an hour it'll be less stefan here is the complete opposite of patriarchy he's home alone taking care of his kids <laughs> yeah i am <laughs> i'm a poor oppressed male <laughs> <laughs> uh. but didn't you have like a marriage alliance already lined up with sean though with your kids, so you gotta avoid that. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't gain any specific power through my marriage, I have to admit. <laughs> Alright, so what we're doing is is the John 6 and John 7, skipping the sounds in between, because we've actually done that in another episode. Katie or Michal, do either of you want to do a summary of John 6? Or? Did you write one, Michal? Uh, I did not, but I can try and summarize it. Sure. Um, uh, basically, John and uh, the the stone, stone snake? Yeah, yep. is that his name? Um, they climb up the scrolling pass to uh, where the wildlings are, where a group of supposedly two wildlings are camping. And um, it's a very long climb, and then they get there and they kill two of them, but it turns out that there's three. Um, the third wildling is a Greet, and um, John doesn't want to kill her. He takes her prisoner instead. And she tells him the story of Bale the Bard and how he became the father of one of the future lords of Winterfell. And she kind of uh, talks about blue winter roses, and, and she immediately makes that connection to John. Like the second she hears that he's like the bastard of Winterfell, which is completely coincidental, I'm, I'm sure. Um, and then the rest of the Night's Watch guys show up, and um, they tell. Um, they tell John that they can't bring Igret with them, and uh, tell and 
Corrin basically is like, do what you gotta do, and then they all leave, and then John tries to kill her, but can't bring himself to, and lets her go. And that's that chapter. Now, was this John's first kill? Like, yes. Talking about it, like he prepared his life for this for combat, but I think it is interesting that on the first read, this is not exactly a remarkable chapter in any way. They climb up, they kill two dudes, uh, they let the girl go, and uh, there's a boring story in between. But on the rereads, uh, of course, it gains because uh, this is such a pivotal development for John meeting Egrid. Uh, and especially letting her go sets off so many uh, so many developments uh, for later on. So the impact of the chapter can't be overstated. It's kind of funny that she spends this whole tra- chapter trying to seduce him, and he he doesn't understand it. He can't pick up on it, and he spends this trifling minute like, "Oh, was it which Stark was it? Was it Brandon the Builder, or was it Brandon?" <laughs> the- <laughs> <laughs> and the grit's like, oh my god, I just want to get laid. Come on. Was she really trying to seduce him, you think, right there? I think so. That whole story. Because she tells the him later that... The stone was right there. So? Let's kill Snow Stone Steak and <laughs> make it on his body. But she spins, like, this whole... She tells this story about this wildling who comes down and steals the daughter of... How stark, and they make a baby down in the crypts, and this blue rose, and it's so romantic. And I think she's trying to give him well, one, she's trying to create a connection with him and being like, Look, I'm not so different from you. And she's very perspective, uh, perceptive, and kind of modern, not I guess not modern, but she understands, you know, that you know, people are people, and evil is evil depending on where you stand. And she's trying to impart to him that, Look. We can. It's good. It's all right. I just, just, just come over here. You know. <laughs> I think she is. It's, I mean, the whole wife stealing thing is a little like, can, as far as consent go, it's, it's, it's a bit of a mess. But I, I don't think there's any debate about what Grit's trying to get at in that scene. Yeah, I think she's desperate. I mean, she knows she's in a bad situation. I guess winning over John is a tactic. You know what Martin I mean, describes a lot is, is her teeth. He keeps saying her white teeth, her white teeth, like over and over in this chapter. It's like. I guess that's rare for wildlings. They don't have good dental work. Like they're crooked, but they're white. I don't believe they're British. That. <laughs> I think those teeth would be brown and falling out of her head. Okay. Baby <laughs> moon tea is good for teeth. <laughs> but then it wouldn't be attracted to her, so... Do, do we have any dental uh, dentists among our viewers? I mean, <laughs> they must be totally engaged by now. <laughs> what would be in the wildling diet that would preserve yeah. their teeth color? <laughs> well, actually, apparently, isn't like um, you know the grain-based diet worse, and the sugars and stuff that they're eating just more meat and stuff? Maybe it's less. Mm-hmm. I I sort of think it's interesting that George, like the first time we really meet a wildling and a wildling woman, much less like one of the big fears about wildlings is that, Oh my God, they come, they sneak over the wall and they steal your daughters. Like they take your daughters right out of your house. Isn't that crazy? They like take your daughters and there's no like refutation of that. It's just like, yeah. So this awesome wildling came and stole this Lord's daughter. Isn't that awesome? And like, he just goes right into it with this, like the number one fear is almost something that the wildlings are like proud of, that this is their reputation. Even, even a wildling woman. Hmm. And then John says that something about her reminds him of Arya. Like, I think he says it a few times where he has that idea. Mm. I'm glad they didn't have sex right then. <laughs> <laughs> this sets up a lot of, um... Obviously, George is doing foreshadowing by mentioning the crypts, and that's mm. where 
Bran is going to end up being dropping that. But there's also echoes from like other things in the in this universe, like the in the story of Bale the Bard. She tells about it, at first. It like it's almost like a fairy tale. It has this nice sweet ending with the father waking up to a baby's cry and going, and he finds his daughter there. But then she's like, but the story doesn't really end there, and it goes on to almost this King Arthur scenario of a father fighting against his son and then the wife, uh, the mother is so grieved that she leaps off a tower and I was trying to draw some parallel like is this tra- is this George trying to tell us something about the true motivations of Ashara but I couldn't I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't pull a theory out of it but also there's a uh, there's a mention to a Bolton somewhere in there a, uh, a lord skinned the Stark yeah, and John says, oh, that this story must not be true, but that's actually more evidence that maybe it's actually closer to being true. At least, like, that part of the story sounds real, because they did do mm-hmm. that. It's like, oh, it must not be true. It's like, well, no, the Boltons did flay Starks. And yeah, like, Grit, she mentions the uh, the glass uh, hothouses in Winterfell, and she has no conception about what a glass hothouse is, what that could mean, but it's part of the story, and there, we know for a fact there are uh, greenhouses, quote-unquote, in Winterfell. So there's some truth in there. Or even the crypts underground. I mean, yeah. the fact that she knows about those. It's funny that John doesn't doesn't question any of this. He's just like, yeah, you know, the like basic entire layout of the place where I grew up that you've never seen. But he's like, ah, oh, that story is not true. And, I mean, we, I think that thing with the Boltons actually happened, right? Like, that's something that, like, I, I just watched on the season three um, Blu-ray. They have the history and lore things. So Bruce Bolton, like, and narrates the one about the Boltons, and it's really scary and awesome. Um, but he he says something about that, like, oh, yeah, there were these rumors. They're, like, totally not true. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they must have skinned at least one Stark. Yeah. And we, we know who else is a fan of the story is Mance, because he takes the name, um, is it Abel? Like, he takes Bale and t- changes the name around. Huh, I never He's noticed still the that. Lord's daughter. Yeah. It's interesting, um... What Igrit says, she says, a bard's truth is different than yours and mine, and that could be applied to basically the story as a whole. Just the yeah. what the pa- like what the past has become in the present, and what we know about what happened during the uh, Robert's Rebellion. It's all become the story that is so far removed from the truth, but it, it makes a good story because of it. It's just it's not the truth that these characters need. Yeah, there's, there's a lot in this chapter and the next that actually is involved in one of my essays, which I can't talk about yet, but just saying these were these are familiar chapters to me. Now, the, he says, I'm Jon Snow, and she says, I'm an, an, an evil name. Like, why does she say that? Snow. Is that evil? Yeah, of course, if you live in the north and have no hope. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought she was probably referring to. Although it's interesting, because that comes across instantly as like, oh, she's super superstitious. And, you know, we get other superstitious things from me great, but nothing about like Jon Snow. It's, you know, maybe that's why she thinks he knows nothing. He's blank as a snowy canvas. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's, li- it's like today if you meet a guy, Hey, what's your name? Hey, I'm John genocide. Mm, that's an evil. <laughs> <name>. <laughs> Johnny, Johnny, Johnny genocide. Yeah. You know, uh, you would say that's an evil name. So, are we supposed to take the Blue Roses thing um, particularly closely here? Because, obviously, that's been associated with Liana over and over and over again. I guess they are generally associated with the North in some capacity. 
But we don't really hear about them. Isn't that like we don't? It might be the, you know. just a way to explain how valuable they are or how important they are. Just the roses, right? Because it says like they're rare. By the way, uh, I think it was a really good decision by the show to make Orel more in the character. He's such a good antagonist. Are you being sarcastic? No, no. Uh, I really like the idea. Oh. <laughs> no, but reading this chapter really did make me think. Like, ah, oh, like Corin is so. He's not my favorite, but like he's he's not hard to get across, you know. Like that conversation with John, like about like, oh well, I learned something about you, and you know, it's so easy, you know. And then it's just like, no, we have to follow the grid around, like for no reason. I mean, these two two chapters, it seems like so. You read Corin didn't care about her leaving, and as we'll see, and like it didn't really affect anything other than actually helping John later. But in the show, it just seems like. Bad John, you made a mistake and you screwed all us all over. Like they, at least that's the way I saw it, right? Yeah, the John storyline in the show is totally fucked up. Uh, I have written an essay. <laughs> I have written an essay about this, but putting Orel in as a character was a good idea. Was that in your in your other ebook, Stefan? Or is... Yes, yes, exactly. It's in my ebook about season three. Oh yeah, was it is known in three? <laughs> yes, exactly. Corn in the show just contradicts himself at every turn to make yes. John look like, like that whole speech that they like dialogue they have when they're walking through the snow before they meet a grit doesn't make any damn sense. I could not follow the no. logic of it. And then no. in, in the Go book, on. it's he's for some reason he just trusts implicitly that John is not going to fuck this all up. Like, sure, go with Stone Snake, climb this mountain. They could have said, I guess, because what's the real reason? Because we need to see it from John's perspective. But I'm like, come on, Corin. He's like a 16-year-old kid. Send Evan or someone who knows how to actually climb with Stone Snake. Don't well, send the green horn. He's though. Like he, he, and he's, and maybe he's like in good shape. Uh, th that's another thing about these chapters, by the way. Uh, I totally missed this on my first, I don't know, five or six rereads. Uh, but uh, there, I there is actually a reason why Corin chooses John, uh, and this is—he has heard of him before. When he comes to the camp and, and he meets Jon Snow, he asks—he immediately asks for Ghost, um, and he—he he seems to have uh, this inkling about, uh, you know, the old gods are strong in this one, uh, and uh, that's why he takes—that's uh, why he takes him along. Well, they had hmm. the prophecy protected him, right? He could have fallen off that cliff. That was... <laughs> no. Yeah, well, that's a risk. He's gonna. Then he knows something more about Jon Snow, right? Yeah. He has can uh, can't can't climb for his life. Yeah. <laughs> 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 then Jon yeah. will become part of the tree instead. Like he'll break his back, and then. Is yeah. that when Jon is having his dream? It reminds me a lot of um, Bran's dream in the in Game of Thrones before he wakes up from his coma. Just like that aerial perspective on looking down over over the north in general and of course then John presumably I guess is talking to Bran in his dream is that is that completely off the board or does anyone think that cuz he says there's a tree and it has his brother's face and he smells the tree and it smells like caves and death and darkness this this is by the way from the next chapter I think just just to point out. Oh, I thought we were. It's okay. No, yeah. we're, 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 two, we're covering the two Johns just to point that out. But yeah, I think is it actually Bran talking back in time and causing it, or is it just some sort of foreshadowing revision? I it think has foreshadowing. To be. But couldn't it potentially be Bran talking like I don't know in tree time, like in I the? I think that's an option. I mean, I part of me part of me was actually confused about the mechanics of it, like. I was wondering, because half of the dream, it's like, 
is it John or is it um, because he's talking about the wolves like right from the start? So I was wondering if like he was in Ghost and Ghost was dreaming, and then Ghost wakes up and goes and sees all of the stuff, but John is still dreaming. So is that like the mechanic of it? Is he in the wolf the whole time, or is it like John dream and then Ghost dream? Good question. Mm. It's just the detail of he could smell darkness and uh, death, death, like something that, I wish I had the book in front of me, but it seemed like he was referring to the fact that he could smell Bran down in the cave. Oh yeah, this definitely says there's something dark going on with, with Bran there, which is maybe makes, like, to the theories that, that, that maybe he's not in the best situation right now or on the best side. Like, there's, there's, there's something dark or death, death-wise over yeah. there. We we can add uh, even more uh, layers to it, but be, uh, because uh, it could be just Ghost himself who connects with the wolves, who connect with the trees, who connect with future Bran, who is trying tree speak to get back at them through time. Oh and, God! Yeah. yeah, I feel. Like I mean, Shanti Collins has this pet theory about uh, Kate uh, being a uh, future Daenerys, so anything is possible. <laughs> this is like my least favorite part of the books. <laughs> The werewood. Seriously, this? I like the, the no, no. I like, I like the werewood internet. I don't yeah. like it. Um, I like Brian it. Is, Brian is able to Google through time. Is the way it, that it I read it. It seems like most. I mean, generally, it's like you can't affect the past. You just see it. But it's just as maybe Baran has a special ability that he can actually communicate backwards. Mm. Because, but but I mean, generally, they wouldn't be able to. I don't think it's like beyond the possibility that that the wolves are a little bit um, prescient. I mean, like. There. Well, they have some sort of connection with each other because they can tell if someone's dead or like where they are. Like they, mm-hmm. they have some sort of dragon, almost dragon-like with the dragon with its rider kind of connection. Yeah. I don't know with, with each other they have some sort of connection. I guess if, if we want to talk about that dream, like it just it, it, yeah, he says like has his brother always have three eyes? No, not before the crow came to shout. Like that sounds like something active coming backwards. And like there's so much in this that they didn't like came out and danced dragons. Like we had no idea what, what was going on, and now we're like, oh okay. Well, y'all... No, now we're like, oh, we should be knowing what this is, but we don't. Have y'all seen that YouTube video of the eagle grabbing the goat off the cliff and then dropping it to its death? I thought about uh, that when I read this chapter. What video? <laughs> what video? No, I mean, it just sounds like a freaking huge bird because they're like, it almost broke Ghost's neck. How big is this freaking eagle? By the way, if you haven't seen it, go Google the eagle. Knocking the goat off the cliff. It's pretty sweet. Okay. <laughs> for, for, for a second, well, I thought he was in a crow, actually. And then, then I saw he was in, he was in uh, Ghost. Like, I thought he was seeing it from a crow's perspective coming in. But no, it was Ghost. But anyways, let's, let's, let's wrap up the first John chapter. Is there anything else in there? Um, there was a line about the mountain, like, wailing like a, a woman over her lost children. And I was like, oh, like, Catelyn who becomes Lady Stoneheart, and mountains are made out of stone. So. We're, really, we're really grasping. <laughs> These chapters are a little oh, thin. He was grasping at the mountain. Grasping. Yeah, the tit of the mountain. <laughs> it was very, like, Call of the Wild, very, like, Steinbeck-ish, I felt like. Just and reading Jack about Linda. all this bleakness. Yeah, Jack Linda, there you go. Um, but you was... knew, knew about that they had to burn the bodies, otherwise they'd come back. Like, it just seems like anybody who dies up there can come back as a white yeah doesn't matter where it is or they just come that's this eagle is fucking huge are you watching it 
Yes. <laughs> Let's take a look here. Eagle versus wow. mountain goat. Okay. The goat seems uh, if, so this e if this is Orel's eagle, then wow. Holy heck. The diet of the golden eagles consists mainly of small mammals. Wait. Occasionally <laughs> captured oak mountains, lambs, fawns, etc. Okay. Never mess around with golden eagles. Might be a skin changer. Holy. Whoa. That's <laughs> crazy. Oh my gosh. Wow. It's just fallen. Yeah, this, uh, the follow-up hey, video. Why did you tell me to watch this? <laughs> the follow-up video is uh, two eagles, one cup. <laughs> uh, I'm done. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> oh my goodness! It says ghost was hunting for a goat, right? So I guess the eagle got just wanted the goat. I think George right. watched this YouTube video when he was writing this chapter. Back in 98. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think that's it for this chapter. I don't see anything else. That basically, he lets her go. Um, yeah. And then we're on to the next John chapter. Do I want a summary for that? John 7. The Night's Watch are approaching the Wadling camp. John confesses to Corin that he let Egrit go. Corin says that's... Uh, okay <laughs> that he knows more about john now that he would have known more about him if he did kill a grit uh john ghost runs off john has his dream where he sees the vastness of the wildling camp spread out he sees a mammoth and he sees a giant and he has his weird tree dream and he sees ghosts get attacked by an eagle he wakes up he tells the dream to the other night's watchmen who listen seriously, and then later Ghost comes back with blood all over his neck, and they see the same eagle again, and Corn Halfhand decides that they've been spotted, and it is time to turn tail and go back the way they came, and they leave Squire Dalbridge behind to defend the pass to give them time to escape, and they hear a horn as they are leaving. Poor Squire Dalbridge. <laughs> yeah, he seemed like an interesting enough guy. He basically has to have a last stand situation. Just like, and then they were none. This this part. Yeah, and he he was squire to a king apparently. So who do you think he was squire to? Maybe Ares. Ares. Mm. That's why he's up at the wall. I oh. guess yeah. For all other kings, he's too uh, too young. By the way, it seems uh, the other men uh, that are there, uh, Squire Dolbridge, Stone Snake, at uh, all, uh, they are all from the Shadow Tower, right? Think so. Yeah, the, uh, the Corrin's group basically, like they're, uh, like they're all like crack people that are like dying off, and you're left with the shit guys. That's <laughs> home, basically, it's like. <laughs> and it seems like a lesson that Sean should have heeded in a Dance with Dragons. Surround yourself with the Shadow Tower guys; they understand what's going on. Interesting, yeah. It's interesting because Corrin says something that gets repeated a lot, which is that um, he says that he it's it's wrong to hate the wildlings, but. Mm. Mance doesn't realize that they lack discipline. And that is ultimately what is their undoing when Stannis comes and routes them, is they are not a cohesive group. They're not a militant group either. They're just like this big assemblage of people. Tribes. Yeah. I mean, Corrin basically dominates the chapters that he's in. Like, the, he's a great character, and you can see, like, he had that he had a close relationship with Mance and feels, like, sad about what happened. Yeah, John is more or less a, a plot vehicle in these chapters. Alright, so we already covered the dream. I'm just looking at that, and it seems like they're all, they're all basically 
they accept that John's vision like is there. We're gonna have like the dead rising. They gotta trust in these things. And yeah. so they were basically so they they were caught out by the the eagle like by the skin changer. Like that's how they were found. Yeah. Yeah. John thinks he sees a shadow cat at one point, and Vermeer, I think, has a shadow cat. So it might have been another spy. Was it this chapter, the one before, where they see the eagle and they're like, it'd be a waste to shoot it down? Was it this or the one before? I think it was the one before. Yeah, that was funny to me because it was. I mean, obviously, like, they weren't. They didn't need to keep going. They could have turned around at that point. But I guess the dream, maybe. Maybe they saw, like, how many there were. I guess if you want to abort a, uh, an important mission because of a dream, you should get sure. Huh. The the other Night's Watch guys seem to take it almost, like, they believe it much more than John does initially. Like, John's like, oh, well, you know, it was just a dream, it was weird. And they're like, nope, tell me. And then <laughs> they find Ghost, and everybody has a heartwarming moment where they all help heal the puppy, and it was very sweet. <laughs> all these grizzled old guys. There's, like, an innocence to John at this point I, I'd forgotten about, because I think so much about him in Dance, even though I haven't reread it, but I, I think about him a lot at that point, and he's so, like, he, I mean, he can be kind of irritating, but at the same time, I just, it's sad that that, like, kind of curious view of the world is, like, totally gone, and now he's just like, no, I am the Lord Commander, also dead. Yeah, by the way, it is interesting how efficiently uh, uh, George Martin uh, kills off all potential uh, successors to a Mormon and all father figures to John until there's no one left at that point in A Storm of Swords. I don't know uh, who first made this argument. I think it's either Adam Feldman or Stephen Attiwell. Uh, but it is it is a very good point. I mean, all those guys would have been natural successors and, and real assets to the watch, and they all die one by one. Mm. Except for, what's his name, Cotter Pike, right? And then everybody's uh, then, like, nah, he's lowborn. Isn't there, it's Cotter Pike at Eastwatch and then uh, a Malister over at the Shadow Tower? Yes. Yeah. They, well, they were never going to win. They just didn't have quite enough support and they were each other's enemies. Like, they didn't have a third party like guy like Corin or something that they could have... I think they had Jano Slint. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Corin would have been a, a contender for a Lord Commander. But uh, who, whoever he supports has a yeah. very good chance. True. And it's he would have supported a ranger. That that much clear. It's interesting because John almost never thinks about Corrin or men- he's almost never mentioned after he dies. Yes. Yeah, he has this he has this very uh, I don't know like Clint Eastwood presence, larger than life, legendary figure. But then when he's gone, it's just he's almost forgotten. Do they take like a skull or something, or did they just leave him? I can't remember. Yeah, the Lord of Bones took his... I think, I mean, I guess you can attribute part of that, this might just be me imposing this on there, but I guess you can attribute a little bit of it to John's guilt. You know, because who else would think about him? You know, Sam didn't know him. And I mean, this is like, this is huge for John. And I mean, still when I I read it, it's a little inexplicable to me. I mean, I, I know, I understand the logic of it, but it's it's still a little bit like Jon Snow, Corrin Halfhand. Which one is more useful to the watch? I don't know. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny that, like, Corrin's just like, John, you're the one. You're the future man. You, you have to think that, like, part of it's just because John is not just better trained, but he's better educated. He has a better perspective on how 
militant societies work than if you're a, a sheep herder who got taken to the wall and you're basically there to be either a mason or a steward. I mean, looking around uh, of like the boys that are brought in, there's no one who has John's pedigree, not just because he's uh, noble-born, but just from an education standpoint. Who else are you going to pick? Who else are you going to groom to be, you know, the Lord Commander in 15 years? Yeah, I think these these experiences and then his with with the wildlings later are just the key to get him to the point where where he respects the wildlings like Corin does. So he's able to use that then uh, when he's actually in rule to to do quite a few remarkable things before he goes down. Yeah. I have to admit in general though, I regard A Clash of Kings as the weakest book in the series and the John chapters in A Clash of Kings as the most weak chapters of all uh, in in many ways. Really? I Yeah, they, they just don't resonate with me like much other stuff does. Well, I mean, Jan- Danny and John in Clash of Kings, they're basically transitory they they both have yeah. like what five chapters and they're both stalling before they get to awesome stuff in the next book but yeah i think they're the yes, weakest exactly. part of clash yeah uh danny she has only five chapters in the whole of clash of kings so she's barely existent found it to be the weaker one at the time but thankfully the books were coming quickly at that point so it didn't, it didn't matter i think yeah, i have just a <laughs> I just really like Clash because of all the Sansa stuff, so... There, there is much about the book I like, uh, but uh, the other books have more I like, you know? You have to pick one that is the weakest, and for me it's Clash. By the way, this is the crazy crackpot line of the chapter. Like, we have always have one read chapter. This one is, Shadows are friends to the men in black. <laughs> we are the men in black. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that too. Yeah, not a lot in this chapter. No, I think the, the the key point was the dream. The dream stuff is is really interesting, but yes. otherwise, just moving moving on ahead. And now they're cornered, and basically they're now. Why can't they outrun them? They just they they're they're just such the bad terrain and stuff. They can't get away. They can't ride their yeah. horses very fast. They're just if it was open terrain, they could just ride away. There's yeah. This. It is interesting that this. Uh, I mean, we don't know how long it's been going on, but this phenomenon of of uh, dead, the dead rising, is a very like important part of wildling existence now. You know, it's. I, I mean, I don't think we have any idea, um, but obviously, it was at least since the beginning of the of the books that people were rising beyond the wall. Cool. Any other final points of the chapter, or that's it? I think that's Nothing it. concerning the chapter, no. Okay, thanks for joining. Uh, well, thanks. Thank you all for joining me today. Like Michal and Katie and Stefan for coming to join. Uh, and cover your essay. Sure. Always a pleasure. Lots of fun. So this essay will be available, as said, in the Hymn for Spring, coming out uh, in uh, June in both ebook and print version. It's currently available in Remy's Waiting for Winter. And what was your other ebook right now, Stefan? Uh, it's it is known season three deconstructed. You can also get it at Amazon uh, as an ebook, and it takes on season three of Game of Thrones and has some uh, essays expanding on various issues. Okay, and thank you everyone for listening out there. You can check us out as podcastsoicefire.com, at Twitter at APOIF, on Facebook at DeviantArt, and Tumblr as well. And we'll see you next time. Maester Bane here again. You don't fear Season 4 of Game of Thrones, do you? You welcome it. Your punishment must be more severe. Come and face me yourself 
on the Vassals of Kingsgrave podcast. Excellent. Okay. Good. Oh, God, we made it through. Your, your, your son is still uh, <laughs> sleeping. Okay. Yeah, he still sleeps. Or else uh, I haven't heard him, but I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> good. That was fun. It was good to get that one recorded. Yeah. Um, okay. Sean, uh, uh, I mean, do you, do you have any more information on your Europe trip, by the way? No, I haven't planned it yet. Uh, I'm still waiting to see if I'm going to be there for another reason. And then I'll be able to see if I like, what the schedule is. But. Hopefully, I'll be visiting Europe, yeah. Play some Game of Thrones in person. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. I mean, I get I get my ass so whipped in these fucking games. <laughs> uh, I, I, have, I haven't played for I haven't played for too long a time. Uh, the little uh, little one is such a killer for the long board games. Yeah, Stefan's been playing oh, online with us. Like uh, the board game, we can play online. So it's been. Oh. But I think you've been a little rusty in the rules sometimes, which can hurt, right? It's like. I'm gonna do this move. It's yeah, like, yeah, I, I, do that move. I only lost because I, uh, of course, that's the only reason. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine that a play by email game would work if you have a, a young child <laughs> around. Uh, yeah, with the play by mail, it's not a problem. That's a better way of it because you, you just oh yeah. Day. But if you but if you play a board game for four hours, the kid's gonna wake up at some point, right? So. Oh no! I just meant like, where do you keep it that they don't like? Attack oh no! You don't need to keep no. it. We have an online version of it. I used to. Oh, cool. I used, you could technically do that though. Like you could do like chess, and you can have the board out and just do a move on there if you wanted to see the physical thing. But yeah, it wouldn't be the right. Like it depends on your living situation. Yeah, it's it's a welcome to the twenty first century thing, basically. Technology allows you to do stuff. Yeah. And play people around the world. That's the fun part of it. Yes, definitely. That sounds Maybe like LOL. My thesis. Technology allows you to do stuff. If we hadn't got past the patriarchy, we wouldn't be able to do this. So it's a good thing we're moving past. Yeah, that. you see it. I'm totally right. <laughs> bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Have a, nice bye. Day. Have a good one. Hey. <coughs> just, just start off. I don't think this is a problem, but nobody talk about curling. I haven't seen the final yet. So. <laughs> You are. I, I. I guess you are the one person on the world that watches this. Oh no! We we, we, we all watch it here. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just saw the hockey game though. That was interesting. Is this the Olympics? Yeah. I have made it a personal rule of my life never to watch sports on TV. <laughs> you only prefer it live. Uh, no, neither. <laughs> I think I think sport is very very unhealthy. Sport, sport is unhealthy. Yeah, that's an interesting. Yes, point. of course. Sport supports the patriarchy. You're saying? Uh, <laughs> haven't thought about that yet. Probably does in some ways, like it, it did until recent times. Maybe I think it has more to do with uh, being a, a rather small, fat child in uh, in school, and you know, sport lessons in school and fat childs that don't add up. Oh. So you were saying you were like in a Samuel there. Carly in, in your youth. Yes, exactly. I think I think Sam would would totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let me see what episode is going to be. This is going to be. I I do rather like uh, every bloody Sunday though. Every damn Sunday. I I don't know what the title is exactly. The Al Pacino thing about American football.
Any given Sunday? Any given Sunday, right? Thanks. Uh, I mean, I don't know whether you got the emails, but but I'm alone uh, alone today. My wife had to go out for work uh, unexpected, so if my son wakes up, he's sleep- asleep right now, but if he wakes up, I have to get him. Yeah, that makes uh-huh. sense. I mean, this is not a live podcast, so if you have to get him, we take a break. If you have to, if you have to pull out, then we do that, and we just continue ourselves. So okay. we'll start with your essay then to make sure we get through that, hopefully. Um, okay. Good. So this is going to be episode 135. I got a lot, a lot on the editing block right now. A few backed up. Okay, 135, February 16th. Okay, we'll start with the essay. All right. So after I introduce, like, get the introduction going, uh, I'll be like, I'm joined by several guests today. And okay. then I'll like say why you're here to cover your um, essay, one of your essays, like from the sample, and then and then we'll then I'll take it. I'll give it over to you, Stefan, to kind of summarize your essay, and we'll just jump into it. At that point. Okay. I don't think you, you any of you have met in person. So we're, today, Stefan, we're joined by uh, Katie and Michal, two of our regular hosts here. That's great. Katie, we're regular hosts now. <laughs> I said, "Be cool, damn it." I know. I'm not in a cool mood. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, you all read it or only I mean? Oh, I read it. Okay. I read it too. Yeah, I sent them copies before. Okay. So they can be ready for this. Yeah. Just because like we wanted to get this episode out quickly, like, and this was the only way we could get it recorded because of everyone's schedule. So, with bringing in Katie and Michal for this one. Mm. And I thought it'd be good to have a balance. We're talking about patriarchy. Let's have some women on here at least, right? <laughs> yeah, that's good. Okay. It's, all, it's always an inter, uh, all men uh, event with uh, with Sean, so. Yeah. All right. Quarter on. Okay, here it goes. <laughs> 